So we're headed to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I want to ask you a simple question, and yet uh, one that, that all of us, it, it applies to. Have you ever experienced failure in anything? Yeah. Um, so, okay, uh, it's traumatic when somebody fails their driver's exam, okay? That can be extremely traumatic for a 16-year-old. It's traumatic if you fail making a team if you're a teenager. It's dramatic if you fail in a variety of different experiences. Um, I have made some tremendous blunders and failures from the pulpit, quite a few, in fact. One of those that stands out that I've probably shared with you before is I made a joke one time. We were in the other building, uh, the other auditorium there, and uh, I was preaching away that Sunday morning. I thought I'd get cutesy all of a sudden and make some kind of a joking remark, and it involved the prayers of a different faith and different church, and so I made this joking remark mark about the Hail Mary, full of grace, swing the beads all over the place, swing them high, swing them low, swing them merry, go, go, go. And, uh, you know, people in our church reacted like giggling and laughing, but there was a family visiting that Sunday who were Catholic. And it was a terrible, it was a terrible thing to do in that service because it hindered the gospel. Uh, I've failed at times in sharing the gospel. Have you ever done that? One man, I shared the story with you that I failed to share the gospel with a man that, that I had worked for for several years there in Owatonna who owned the car company that I worked for, and I failed to share the gospel with him. And I was the last person that I knew, and I found out at the end that when I came back to the area several months later that I was the last person that had seen him that Friday night, and he hung himself. And I, he, and I didn't share the gospel with him. I'm um, just more recently, I've, I, I blew it here a couple Christmases ago. Um, we were planning the Christmas service and we were showing some videos and I thought it would be cute and show a humorous video, but I'm sitting in the service as soon as that Christmas morning service started, I'm thinking that video was not in good taste. And several of you let me know about that afterwards as well. We, what, what is good about failure? Anything? You learn from it, correct? Failure is good. One, you learn from it. Two, you become more cautious in the future. Three, it kind of knocks us down a peg. Is it good to be knocked down a peg at times? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are in Mark chapter 9 where the, where the disciples experience a tremendous failure. Now, you've heard this passage. We've preached this passage before, but let's revisit it one more time. It's the story of the disciples that Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, he is out on the Mount of Transfiguration. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. He goes up there, and while they're up on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, remember what happens? They experience this tremendous, tremendous experience. I don't know if that's a funny way of saying it. They experience a tremendous experience. They went up there to pray, but when they're up there and they fell asleep instead of praying, which seems to be their pattern, what happens to Jesus? He's glorified. He's transfigured. He's transformed. And then they see Christ. They get that confirmation that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, which Peter had already stated, and now it's just confirmed by seeing him visibly in that mode. And then they hear 
um, Jesus having conversation with Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about his upcoming death. And afterwards, Jesus gives them even more information. He talks about him. He gives them confirming information from the prophecies that he is the Messiah, and his messenger has already come ahead of time. Look at the text. You'll see where he's quoting it. In Mark chapter 9, where you jump down, where he's making comments in verses 12 and 13, where he says that John the Baptist is the Elijah who's come before. And he also tells them that there's going to be the resurrection, and they're confused about his resurrection. They don't understand that. And as they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus says, what what you saw up here in the mountain, don't tell anybody until after my resurrection. The story continues now. We're into about verses 14 towards uh, about verse 29. And what we have is they come down from the mountain. Now Luke 9 adds this, the next day they run into the crowd at the bottom. So they come down from the mountain, and there's a group of people gathered. There's a crowd there, and it's chaotic. There's three basic elements to the crowd. There are the nine disciples that were left behind who have been trying to continue the ministry that Jesus has given them. Then there's uh, the crowd of people who are there, which makes sense that wherever Jesus was going during this time, crowds would gather because they are all usually, what are the Jews looking for? What do they want to experience? Some type of miracle, okay? And then an occasion had arisen. And then there's another group, and we don't know how big this group is, but it's the critics. It's the scribes. They are there as well, and they have seen the nine disciples try to perform a miracle, and they have failed. And so what happens here, in verse 14, we pick up the story where Jesus came with his disciples, saw a great multitude, and the scribes were... Now, my King James says questioning the disciples or questioning them. Does anybody have another word for questioning in your translation? Because the word clearly in the original says that they were accusing them. They were attacking. It was a confrontational experience. We don't know why initially until all of a sudden we read that what happens straightway, all the people, when they beheld Jesus, they were greatly amazed and they run to salute him. Now, here is what some scholars say. Some scholars say that when the crowd saw Jesus coming, the reason they were amazed was because Jesus had an afterglow of his transfiguration like Moses had an afterglow from his experience of seeing God on the mountain back in the book of Exodus. I don't personally buy that because of this reason. Jesus said to the disciples when they were coming down from the mountain, don't tell anybody about what you saw until after the resurrection. Well, if he was still glowing, that command not to say anything is absolutely a worthless command. They would have seen it. I I think the gist is more of this, that as Jesus came, the crowd had gathered. They were wondering what is going on. And you read the next couple verses, the reason they're gathered together and the reason that there is the confrontation is one man came bringing his only son who had a tremendous physical problem because of a demon. And he had come and the disciples had tried to heal that boy. Crowd's coming. They want to see a healing. And now there's a confrontation going on because the disciples could not get the job done. And so the accusations are coming from the scribes, probably not just against the disciples, but who else would they attack? If these scribes were critical of the disciples of Christ, who else would they impugn because the disciples couldn't do the job of healing? Jesus himself. And all of a sudden the crowd sees Jesus... And the expectation is, if Jesus is here, surely something will get done. 
and because that's been his pattern. So the crowd runs to Jesus Christ, and Jesus twists the things by saying, okay, what's going on here? Why do you question? Why are you scribes attacking my disciples? And one of them, before the scribes, before the disciples could answer, one of the multitude answered and said with politeness and with reverence, Master, I have brought unto them my son, which has a dumb spirit. And, and again, that dumb is not mental, but it is what? what you, okay, he's mute. He's mute. He cannot speak. And wheresoever he, that is the spirit, tear, takes him, he tears my son, he foams, he gnashes his teeth, he pines away. I spake to your disciples that they should cast this demon out, and they could not. And so this man is just in a tremendously difficult situation, which all of us can understand, that if it were us... And remember, Luke tells us it's his only son. There, we have no indication of a wife, so this could be just the man and he and his son alone. And he is, he is taking care of his son. And look at the description of it. He's foaming. He's got lockjaw. This boy is suicidal when the demon tears him and takes him. In fact, a little bit further, further on, verse 40, 22, oft times he casts him into fire, into waters. For what purpose? to destroy him. And, and, then, and then if you put yourself in that spot, you as a parent can't even leave the house. Correct? Because if you leave, what happens to your son? You are playing watchdog over your son because there is a physical threat against your child at all, the, at all moments. And so when Jesus asks him, how long has this been going on? He says, uh, in the other text, he says, since he was a little child. This has been something that it seems utterly... Um, irreversible. It's entrenched in this boy's life. This demon has had a hold on him for years, and it's so severe. What's interesting to note is the way that this is portrayed. Mark gives us the most information compared to the three synoptics that hold the story. We get three. We get several comments made here. The dad is so torn. He talks about the disease and the the. Um, I shouldn't call it a disease. They, he call, talks about the the spirit indwelling in verse twenty. He talks about it in verse 22, and uh, then it's very clear, it gets even so bad that in verse 26, when the spirit cries, it rent the child sore and came out. In fact, it is such a vehement attack upon the child. What do the people think? That the child dies. And so we have all this information in this text that keeps on repeating the condition of the child, how desperate it is, how, how absolutely, in, in fact, when the dad says to Jesus... Have compassion. Who does he say have compassion on? Have compassion on my son? Does he say that? What does he say? Have compassion on us. I am, I am living this horrible situation with my son. We are both afflicted by it. And so we have all that information that's going, that's, that's continued. And, G, and he comes to Jesus and he says in verse 20, uh, 22, he says, if you can do anything. Now, the last time Jesus healed somebody who brought their son, I think it was Jairus, the last time it happened in the, in the gospel, he says, if you are willing. This time he says it differently. This man says, if you are able to, if you can. And so there's a little bit of a doubt here. And why would that be? The man brought him to the disciples, and they've heard about people being healed. But it might be 
impossible because this is a real severe situation. My son has had this since little. This is a life and death situation. So the father has a little bit of restraint of his hope, and yet he's coming in faith to Christ, asking if Jesus Christ can help him. And as you go through the account, then what you have is the man is pleading, and that's the gist of our story, Okay, how Jesus handles it. When I'm doing my Bible study, I wanted to do it this way with you this evening, just to give you a sense of one way you can study the Bible. You get the the flow of the story. Those are the details of the story. Look for pungent phrases. Look for for wording. Look for um, thoughts. Look for sentences that seem odd, that seem peculiar, the commands, and look at, look at notable phrases in the text. I found several of them going through that are worth just taking into our time in, uh, in the passage. Jesus, when he comes and he says, what's going on? They explain that this, but your disciples couldn't do anything. Notice what Jesus says in verse 19. He said and to the peoples, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Who is Jesus rebuking? He says, O faithless generation. Who does that include in, in the people who are there? Does it include the scribes? Could, could the scribes be considered a faithless group of people? Yeah, right? Okay. Could it be the crowd? Could some of the crowd be chiming in that this is beyond opportunity and ability? That's a possibility. Could it be the disciples? Okay. Um, he doesn't normally do this in the Gospel of Mark. He usually doesn't refer to the disciples as a generation. Usually it's a bigger group. But is it the strong possibility by the rest of the wording that he's referring to his nine? Because of what does he say next? How long have I been with you? Okay, and so these, they should have gotten it by now. How long shall I suffer you or be patient with you? Remember the overall text of this, or the overall situation. At this time in Jesus' ministry, what is he doing with the twelve? He has suspended his most of his public ministry. This is in the second half of his three and a half years. He has suspended most of his public ministry, and he's focusing primarily on training which group of people? The twelve, the disciples. This is their private schooling, but at times he takes them into a public venue. Like in this case, it's a public venue. Could the disciples learn a tremendous lesson through this public venue? Absolutely. And so I think personally that he's talking to all the different folk involved, but primarily to his disciples. And he rebukes them, calls them a faithless generation, not that they don't have any belief, but they don't have an ongoing, growing faith that we'll see in a few moments. And so the fact is, Jesus expects his followers to have ongoing faith. Jesus, he fully, he fully requires of his followers to maintain a confidence and use the spiritual resources that are at their disposal. Not to stop. Not to give them up once in a while. He, and he's disappointed when we don't use the spiritual resources that he's left us with. That's one phrase that I think is notable. <clears throat> There's another notable phrase or situation. It's the response of the demons. We read in verse 20. They brought the boy unto him, and when he saw him... Well, who's the he and the who's the him? When Jesus and the demon are confronting with one another, the demon in the boy, Jesus in the flesh, what happens? What does the demon do? 
Okay, the, the demon convulses. Right away, he's, he's responding in this panic and in this, in this tremendous way. He fell on the ground. He's wallowing and foaming. So the demon has a response to it. <clears throat> Go a little bit further. Okay, we have in verse 25. It says, uh, <clears throat> when Jesus said, the man says, if you can, you know, do something, do something. Jesus says, if you believe all things are possible, straightway the father says to the child, <clears throat> child cries out, and the father says, Lord, help my unbelief, I believe. When Jesus saw the people running together, he rebuked the foul spirit. He said, you dumb and deaf spirit, I charge you. And he gives them two commands. What are the two commands he tells the demon? Come out and stay out, right? There's two, there's two commands here. You come out and you stay out of this boy. So he's preserving the boy for, for long term. Now, if you just stop right there and say, what does this teach you about demons? Several thoughts right away. Demons are, they're real. They're real. Demons are, what's that? Powerful. Okay. Demons are destructive. Okay. Anything else? What did you say? Are they subject to believers? In this text, in this text, are they automatically subject to believers? The answer is no. But they are automatically subject to Jesus Christ. Okay? They have to listen to Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, what is the demon's typical response before Christ? James talks about this as well. This demon is trembling. Okay, remember it says, you believe in God, so do the demons, and they tremble. James talks about So here you have demons, the reality of it. That's, a uni- that's an important phrase in this context that gives us a little bit of information. The Father's comments is a notable phrase in my mind, where the Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And so, and Jesus, Jesus' response to that is this. Jesus responds and basically says to him, and he twists it. The dad said, if you can do anything. And Jesus turns around and says, if you can what? If you can believe, okay, then I can do anything. And so Jesus puts the onus upon that man to have that exercise of faith. All things are possible to him. And then you have this little, this little tidbit of a nugget. Straightway the father of the child cries out and says, Lord, I believe. Uh, the, the wording here is this man, he is not hesitating. I believe you. I really believe you. But I sense I have a problem with my belief. What is it? What's that? He, he's got some doubts. Right? I'm trusting you, but... And none of us ever do that. None of us ever ever have those moments. I'm trusting you, Lord, to take care of all my finances, but all of a sudden this one happened. And this one staggers me. I'm trusting you to take care of my kids, but all of a sudden my kids have a really major situation. And it's kind of given... it's, It's knocked me sideways. And so here this man is, and he's saying, I want to believe, I want to trust you, but I recognize that I have growth to be done. I'm not where, where I need to be, so help me, help me in, my, in my immature faith, if we can put it that way. And so then Jesus talks to the dad. There's another notable phrase, okay? It's in verse 26. 
I don't have a conclusion on this. I just know what is the possibilities. And the spear cries out, rent him sore, came out of him, and the child, or he, was as, what's your Bible read? As one dead. Okay. Did the boy die? That's the question. Okay. The reason it's a question is the words that follow thereafter. Okay. Because in the words that follow thereafter, it says, Jesus lifted him up, and the word for he arose is he resurrected. It's an implication that the boy could have died. Okay. I don't have a conclusion if that's the case. But if it did happen, is that possible that Jesus raised a child from the dead? Has he ever done that before in the gospel? He did on several occasions. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son. And in this context are the disciples wondering, how does somebody come back from the dead? Go back to when they came down from the mountain. Remember, he's walking down the mountain and he says, don't tell anybody until I've resurrected. And it says, we're back into the text, where it says in verse 10, they kept that saying within themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead means. So maybe, maybe at this moment, this is a lesson not only for the nine, but for the other three who Jesus had told them, I'm resurrecting, and they're going, I don't get it. How is that possible? And all of a sudden, he literally resurrects a child. Again, it could, it could be that the child died. I don't know and I'm, uh, for, with all certainty, but that's a strong possibility. And then what you have notable phrase is what happens afterwards, and when he was come into the house, his disciples come into the house, and Jesus does this frequently. He does something in a public venue with his disciples, and then privately, it's school time, classes in session. Let's talk about what happened outdoors. He takes them indoors, and they have this conversation. And that conversation is a tremendous conversation that has so much important information for those of us who fail, like the disciples who failed that they need to learn from their failure. Several lessons that stand out, okay, that are major lessons. Number one lesson would be this. We disciples need Christ's help more than we think we do. We need Christ more than we think we do. We are like the disciples, uh, like these disciples, that we remember how we used to do the casting out of the demons. You go back to chapter 3, they cast out demons. They went all over doing it. And they, were, they had no problems doing it. Now, several months later, they're in, unable to do it. And when they cast out, when they're unable to do the ministry the way that they wanted, and by the way, they wanted to do ministry. While Jesus is up on the mountain, they're not hesitating to try to do what they were told to do. Minister to people in need. There is, no, there is no lack of desire. There is no lack of, of concern. There is no lack of attempt. But they failed. Why? They forgot that they need Christ more than they thought they do. The reason I'm throwing stones at them is because I'm from the inside of glass house thinking, how often do I do the same thing? How often do we go about trying to handle situations as if we are totally enabled and, and totally experienced that we can handle whatever comes our way on our own? And Lord, I'll grab you if I get myself in trouble. Well, that type of attitude gets us into trouble, does it not? And they had some major problems here. They have critics. They have the confrontation of the, of the, of the spiritual confrontation of the demon. 
they have themselves, they have to deal with their own failure. How come it didn't work? How come we fell flat on our face? I need you, Christ. I need you to give me wisdom how to answer the critics. I need you, Christ, to help me to deal with spiritual oppositions and conflicts and trials and troubles. I need you, Christ, to help me to correct properly, to have the right response to failure. We need Christ more than we think we do. Number two lesson stands out to me is this. We disciples need to be growing in our faith. How often? Always. Always. How, how, was Christ content that the disciples had faith enough to cast out demons in the past? He said, oh, hey, guys, it's no problem. You did it before. Good try. Good job that you tried. That's not what I read when he says in verse 19, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? It sounds like Jesus is frustrated or disappointed in his disciples. Do you think he's ever disappointed in you and me when we don't exercise faith after we know so much scripture? After he has brought trials and situations and carried us through different difficulties and then we struggle and we stumble, we fall flat on our face and we don't turn to him. We don't run to him. And he is, I wonder if, I wonder if he ever does this like... I told you. I told you. I told you. Uh, I was having a conversation with some relatives. They were asking me, do you, do you think about retirement? I, say, I said to them, no, yes. No, yes. And they said, well, what, what do you find? You know, my relatives who, uh, who, who are... Uh, uh, they love the Lord, they're serving their churches. And they said, what do you find at this point in your life to be the greatest frustrations in, in still ministry? And that one I had an answer for right away. My answer is I find myself having less and less patience with stupid. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay. You can't fix stupid, Right? We can't fix situations where people make some really horrible decisions when they know and you sit there and you share the Word of God and you say, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Word of God tells you. And you're still going to just plow right ahead and do what you're going to do and it's going to become a mess. And for me, that's becoming the more and more less, less patience and more frustration is, come on. And maybe I'm the only one in the room that does this. But there are times I just want to walk up to some people and go, excuse me, whack. Yeah. My dad's phrase when we were little, give him a good, a good swift you know, slap across the side of the head. Don't you ever feel like doing that to some people? I'm the only one in the room. And so here Jesus is go- dealing with, how many times has he said to them, you need more faith? You go through Mark, it's been a bunch of times already. It's been a bunch of times. And it's like, man. Now, here's, here's the, the rub of it all. You and I need to keep growing in faith. And faith comes, comes by hearing what? Okay. And we say, okay, God, I'm going to grow in faith, but we don't read it. We don't take it in. We don't pray. Because we've got, this in, we've got this under control. 
We got this handled. We know that doesn't work. We know that's, that's the absolute sure ingredients for failure, but we still do it or don't do what's right. How frustrated must Christ become? You, I, I'm so glad he's patient and he's forgiving and he's tolerant. Then I get this third lesson. We disciples need to be praying and fasting regularly more often than we often do. Well, that's where we come to. That's where this whole thing wraps up. Jesus, it says, comes into the house. His disciples asked him, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Jesus makes it very clear. He says, you didn't have faith. You didn't have faith. Well, how does faith work? This kind comes by forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting is an expression of faith. You guys didn't have it. You just didn't do it. By the way, just to give you a couple of tidbits, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is giving some type of injunction to pray. He's prayed before, but this is the first time. It's going to be one of the four times that in the Gospel, now he picks up this theme of prayer and repeats it. He, some people look at this text and they say, well, wait a minute, this only applies to the nine disciples. However, I remind you that what did the other three do on top of the mountain initially? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. So it's all the disciples that are struggling with prayer. And it seems to be a universal problem. Can we bring some conclusions here? Okay. Why we need to be praying and fasting more regularly. Because spiritual authority and position alone are not enough to bring about success in our ministries. Let me repeat that. Spiritual authority and position alone are not enough to bring about success in ministry. Okay, that's a lesson for me. Just because I hold the office of a pastor, therefore, everything I do spiritually is going to be successful. No. No. No, my, I can do all the study I'm supposed to do, but unless I bathe the study in prayer and fasting, Sunday is going to be ineffective. You know the lesson... It's trivia for you. You can walk in the room and you can pop out that lesson to the kids. It will be ineffective without prayer and fasting. Trying to reach that neighbor, trying to raise your kids through your example, through your lifestyle, it requires prayer and fasting. Second thought, past successes in ministry are no guarantee to spiritual successes today. You had the answers yesterday. God blessed you in your endeavors yesterday. That doesn't mean today you can just do it without Christ's help. You need Christ more than what you think you do. You need to show that by praying and fasting regularly. Because praying faith brings the ability to see spiritual victories won in even the worst of cases. A praying faith enables you to see victories won in even the most severely detrimental cases like this one impossible, deadly. Please, we're desperate. And praying faith results in, in, in the aspect of, of success. Praying faith alone bridges the gap between human weakness and divine omnipotence. Praying faith alone bridges the gap between human weaknesses, that's us, and divine omnipotence. Because praying faith needs to be made before the spiritual challenges arrive. The praying faith needs to be made before. We don't wait until tomorrow when there's crises. We should be praying for wisdom tonight.
We don't wait until, okay, let's, let's do it right away, Sunday morning, right before the service. Then we're going to pray for spiritual victories on the lives of individuals who come who are totally dominated by some type of sin. No, we pray ahead of time. So that when the crisis arises, so that when you're at the school and somebody engages you there in the hallway, you're able to answer because you've been prayed up beforehand. Make another comment. The reason we need to be praying regularly is because the power of prayer depends upon actually praying. It is so easy to talk about it, but it is so hard to do. One writer put it this way, made this comment. It said, no time to pray is the, is the, is the poem. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish, I didn't have time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me. The heavier came each task. And then I asked, why doesn't God help me? He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, you didn't seek. I cried to open the doors to God's presence and blessings. I used all my keys of skills I had learned, but all in vain. God gently and lovingly chided, my child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. I need it. You need it. Christ commands it. Father, help us. Help us not to just talk about these spiritual disciplines, but help us to do it. Even these next minutes, I pray in Christ's name. Let's take it.